Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, I have a question for you that might be the dumbest one I've ever asked. I'll be the judge. Okay. In football, why don't they call the backup quarterback the vice quarterback? You know what? I don't think that's stupid. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think they should call him the vice quarterback. I mean, it feels like a little more, uh, like, real. You know, backup makes you sound like, oh, you're backup. Vice is like you're just number two. Right. Like you're waiting, like your role will will materialize if something happens. Right, you're not just going to like sit the bench. Yes. Or maybe we could call the vice president the backup president. The backup president? <laughs> or second string president. I'm not sure that that inspires people to think that things will be okay <laughs> should something happen to the president, which is like to your point about the backup quarterback or whatever it was. There should, it vice should be vice quarterback. because should be vice the vice quarterback. quarterback is just the person who steps in. They're not like backup. I mean, second string president sounds like he would be the president if like the real president needs to have shoulder surgery. They or should all just his... be called designated survivor. <laughs> Ooh, that is that's so uh, that's so Grim. Fox action series. Yeah, designated survivor. Um, okay, cool. This week, strap in, guys. We are joined by Senator Elizabeth Warren, Texas congressional candidate Candace Valenzuela, Kieran Deal and Caroline Rose Giuliani to tackle the following questions. What's something a secretary of education could do on day one to change millions of people's lives for the better? Shouldn't there be more moms in Congress? How on earth does nudity end up on Zoom? How do you stand up to your dad when he's one of the president's chief enablers? And most importantly, what's Bailey Warren dressing up as for Halloween? All this and more right now. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. As you probably heard in the intro, uh, the show is pretty stacked today. Like maybe the biggest show we've ever done. And it just kind of all happened this way. We we didn't plan it. People just wanted to be with us. People kept wanting to hang out and, you know, like we can't help that we're popular. Um, So as a result, Alyssa and I are going to do an abbreviated news segment. We're just going to stick to, I think, toasting and roasting today. Let's do it. Okay. So let's start with a negative and end on a positive. Okay. Okay. So I have a roast. I want to roast. And she's been roasted quite a bit. Um, but I, I got I to gotta add to the pile on. I got to roast Dianne Feinstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, Senator from California, Dianne Feinstein, who is the ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee on the Democrats' side, who essentially used the Amy Coney Barrett hearing as a way to demonstrate how little she cares about anything that isn't being nice to Lindsey Graham. She kind of made a, a, a limp try at pretending to be a hard ass about democratic priorities like the Affordable Care Act. But at the end of the at the end of the hearing, she complimented Lindsey Graham. She told him that it was great, maybe one of the best hearings ever. This is despite the fact that Senate Republicans still haven't passed a COVID relief bill and that they've prioritized confirming underqualified judicial nominees over doing literally anything for the American people. Um, I just think Diane Feinstein, you know, I, I echo a lot of progressives when I say she's got, she's, we, she's got to get out of there. Democrats need to play dirty for the next, not dirty. They need to play hard. Democrats mm-hmm. need to play, need to play hard 
if by you know the grace of God we get the Senate, we need to play hard, and Dianne Feinstein doesn't play hard. We need to replace her with like Amy Klobuchar or Maisie Hirono. Or, or Katie uh, Porter can take her spot in the Senate and we can have Katie Porter. Oh my God. Don't tempt me with a good time, Alyssa. <laughs> um, Katie Porter, who else? Sheldon Whitehouse would make a good Karen Bass. Like Karen Bass. Like she like I I kind of think that DiFi needs to go like in toto. Like it's not just the Judiciary Committee. She I just think needs that to retire. she just represents a bygone era because she's from a bygone era. And uh and it's just time. It's just time. Look, when I worked at the White House, I'm like, you know what? I've been given 115% and I'm down to 100%. Let me make room for some fresh legs, some fresh eyes. Di-Fi, take a page from my book, sister. <laughs> yes, exactly. Sometimes it's good to know when to, to quit. Know when you to know? hold them. Know when to, know fold when to them. hold them. You don't want to be the last one hanging out at the party. Nope. And if the if the party is the is the Democratic Party from the... 1990s pre Newt Gingrich era, and it is the year 2020 when the house is on fire. You you can't. Yeah, I think she's got to go. Karen Bass would make a great replacement for her, um, and again, so would Katie Porter. Yeah, yeah, she's just got to go. So I'm I'm roasting Diane Feinstein. Thank you for your service, ma'am. But I, we're playing a different game now. I fully co-signed that roast. Okay. You ready for my toast? Yes, please toast. I'm, I'm, I am I'm. want to <laughs> expel some of this negativity before we get to the interview. Okay, so I want to toast the South Lawn of the White House. And I want to toast the South Lawn of the White House because it's bringing me joy every day. Every day, Donald Trump walks across it like he's got a load in his diaper. He just, <laughs> it's like torture. It's such a long walk for him, too, because he's not even remotely sprightly. And there should just be a dirge playing in the background. Because every day he goes out to that helicopter, like Danny dumps, he's like, bum, ba-dum, bum, ba-dum. And he's like forced <laughs> to slowly wave. And he knows that everyone's looking at him being like, uh, 10 times out of 10 for the past four years, you have come over and like held court with reporters. And now he's just slowly shuffling off. And I'm just like stoked that I hope these are the last images we have of him. Sadly, slowly lumbering to Marine One. Trudging. Trudging. The trudge. All of them. The old... All of them. All of them. <laughs> Fuck you. The old presidential trudge. Uh, as he trudges into the helicopter to be taken to a place where he can cough virus remnants on a bunch of people who should not be having gatherings. It's like the South Lawn's revenge for Melania taking all the apple trees. <laughs> she took the apple trees? Yeah, you know, like when she redid the rose garden in quotes. I didn't know there were apple trees in the rose garden. Yeah, I thought that if was you all look, they're roses. either apple or cherry. I think they were apple trees, crab apple trees uh, that lined, or cherry trees. Either way, they were beautiful trees. And they lined the the colonnade that connected the West Wing to the East Wing. And uh, she removed them, and no one knows where they are. And I think that the grounds were angry, and now they're getting their revenge. That's a very Halloween-y Spooky. idea. Little spooky. It's a very spooky idea. I think that they were removed because they were removed, like we discussed um, around RNC time yeah. 7,000 years ago, so that they would have a better photo op. Totally. Clear shot. They just like murdered a bunch of fucking trees. Do you remember shot. anything? For I mean, a mediocre, like, not even mediocre. It was a fucking shitty speech. <laughs> utterly forgettable. I don't remember a single thing except for the fact that she seemed bored and mildly in pain. Like when she talks about Christmas. The only thing I remember is that they took the trees. 
Yeah, well, and now the lawn is getting its revenge. Yeah, feels good. Yeah, it's like uh, one time when I was in New York City and I think that I had, I think that I'd like, this, I've told edible stories too much, too much, but I'd eaten too much of an edible and I was walking to the subway station and it was one of those long blocks on the Upper West Side that like really long blocks as you're heading towards Central Park. And I remember starting and being like, the train station is just on the end of this block. <laughs> and I walked for what felt like half an hour and I looked up and it was still just as far away. I feel like that's how Trump feels when he's walking across the South It block. is. It is. And I love it. And now that I have mentioned it on our podcast, I want everyone to enjoy it and watch it too. That's a great recommendation. I think I'm going to do that as soon as we're done recording this episode. Mm. Okay. I am so excited for what comes next. We are about to interview one of our heroes, somebody who we've wanted on the show since basically the beginning. Um, We got her. We got Elizabeth Warren. We're going to talk to her. Senator Elizabeth Warren, welcome to Hysteria. We are so glad you're here. Both of us have been longtime admirers of yours, and we made absolutely no effort to hide how excited we were about you running for president. And we won't apologize for the fact that we're both wearing Elizabeth Warren swag right now. So, <laughs> I am delighted to be on Hysteria and in Hysteria, uh, and also <laughs> delighted to be with both of you. So let's have some fun. Yeah, let's have some fun. Okay, so at this point in 2016, this isn't a fun question, just to preface. (laughs) Um, At this point in 2016, almost everybody except maybe Vladimir Putin thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. So as a result, even though polling looks good for Biden-Harris, Alyssa and I spend most days oscillating between mild confidence and utter panic. So do you ever feel panicked or anxious about the election? And if so, What's your plan for how to handle it? And what would you tell anxious Democratic and progressive voters in the last days of the campaign? So I would say, like all of us, polling looks good right now. You know, you feel the little hopeful parts, but it felt really good four years ago. And obviously it didn't work out. In fact, it went so far wrong that we didn't know how wrong it could go. Uh, So the way I think of this right now is that means use every day between now and November 3rd, every single day, because what you're gonna be able to do after that to affect the election, no, it's all gotta happen right now. First thing, obviously vote. Second thing is volunteer. Volunteer even if you've never volunteered before. Volunteer to spend an hour online talking to people, uh, to call people, to text people, but put some energy into this. Talk to your friends, talk to your family, talk to the neighbors, talk to people in parking lots. And here's why. This is not only about winning, which it very much is on November 3rd. It's about winning big. It's about winning really big. Because the reason we want to win really big is we want to create the momentum for the kind of changes we need to make. We wanna say to ourselves and to the rest of the world, no, we are not the America of Donald Trump. 
We are a different America. We are an America that cares for each other. We are an America that's going to attack this COVID crisis head on. We are an America that's going to make sure that everybody gets health care. We're an America that wants to cancel student loan debt. We're an America that wants to provide universal child care for all of our kids and expand social security and disability payments for people who need it. That's the America we are. So think of it this way. Every time you volunteer an hour, you spend time out getting more people in to vote. You're spending an hour not just on Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's win. You're spending an hour on canceling student loan debt. You're spending an hour on saying to the rest of the world, America has competent, caring leadership. So let's do this. Now to November 3rd. <laughs> so now let's take a second to indulge our optimism. Okay. What if, what if, all the extraordinary hard work and commitment pay off on Election Day yes. or sometime shortly thereafter, mm -hmm. and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will, in fact, restore integrity to the White House. They will owe some of their victory to progressive voters who do the right thing and vote for them, even though they're not 100 percent on board with Joe Biden's agenda. So if Democrats win, how do progressive voters who supported people like you, Bernie Sanders, and Castro in the primary nudge centrists to the left? Once in office, how do progressive voters hold centrist Democrats accountable? So I love this question. And I Great. love it because I get to talk to the progressives who basically, we know exactly how to do this, right? Think of it this way. We've been fighting uphill forever now, right? How big was the progressive movement in 2016? How big was it in 2012, right? Uh, pull out your magnifying glass. I'm not saying it wasn't there, but there weren't so many of us when we started this. And now it's a big, vibrant movement with lots of people and lots of energy and lots of directions and lots of issues. So here's how I see it. Here's the, here's the big plan, the overview plan. We're going to bust our rear ends between now and November 3rd. Then on November 4th, or maybe a little bit after that, we're going to celebrate for a day. We're going to take off the day, right? We're going to do, <laughs> right? All the celebration, <laughs> right? <laughs> and yeah, oh, I see how you're laughing. You're into this, right? We're into this. We're yeah, totally this is a great plan. It. And then the day after that, we're all back to work. Back to work, pushing back in the fight. Progressives cannot afford to be the folks that say, okay, we elected you now, get this done and we'll check in with you in four years. Right. That is not how this is gonna happen. Now, what that's gonna mean is we're gonna have to work together. You can't push everything through the door at once. We're gonna have to pick up each other's fights as our own, but we're good at that as progressives. Uh, Julian and I talk about this a lot. So, you know, how we pull people together and how we say, as long as we promise we're going to get to all of them and get to them early, then we will keep working. We're going to get to that student loan debt. We're going to get to immigration reform and protecting our dreamers. We're going to get the pieces, but we're going to keep fighting for them. So I'm already making up my list. I don't know about you, but- We have lists. <laughs> good. <laughs> oh, we love lists. All the time. I'm a list maker. <laughs> we know. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, I guess that's no surprise, is it? <laughs> But the list of all the things that can be done administratively, both by executive order and in the agencies themselves, once you have agencies, oh, like Department of Education that's not run by Betsy DeVos, 
or Environmental Protection Agency that's not run by a coal lobbyist. You know, once you have the right people in, so there are some things that are going to go that way, and then some it's going to take Congress to step up. So we're going to get our list going. We're going to get our targets going for each of those lists. We're going to make it happen. Yes. That's so nice to hear. Um, <laughs> this week, instead of uh, actually passing a COVID relief bill like voters want, uh, you're all, <laughs> the senator is already making a face like she knows what I'm going to say. <laughs> Ted Cruz and some of his Republican colleagues introduced a proposed constitutional amendment banning court packing. So, Senator, why do you think they're doing this? And if Democrats take control of the government come January, do you see a coming tug of war between institutionalists who think we have to keep playing by the rules that Republicans just ignore and reformers that want to fix the judicial branch? And what's the first step that needs to happen policy-wise for the system to be fixed? So if we had truth in labeling about proposed laws like this one on court packing, it would be called the... Republicans stole two seats and they plan to keep them stolen. Uh, that's that's the idea behind it. So look, we're going to have to do a lot of work to restore the integrity of our courts. Uh, and, and I want to be blunt here. It's not just the Supreme Court. For four years now, the Republicans have been packing our courts. They've been packing them with right-wing extremists. They've packed them with racists, with sexists, with homophobes, with people who hate voting other than their own tiny little elite group. And we're going to feel the impact of that for generations. So as Leader Schumer says, it's all going to be on the table. One piece I really want to emphasize, because you, you ask the right question, and that is, how do you think of this in terms of structural change, institutional reform? Are we just going to be the party that says, oh, when Republicans are in power, it's one set of rules. And then when Democrats are in power, the Republicans say, no, 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 we have to do things differently. And my view around this is we're going to have to tackle filibuster uh, head on. This idea that if, and you'll hear me knocking on wood in the background, we get the White House, we get the Senate, we get the House of Representatives. That means we can get things done. We cannot give Mitch McConnell a veto in the Senate so that nothing gets done. So this idea, and I want, think about it this way. What do the Republicans want to do in this world? Well, basically, they don't want to pass any laws to help people. Have we seen that pretty clearly? They just want to pass laws to cut taxes. That's kind of their main thing. They get that through on 50 votes. The laws to help people are always subject to these 60 vote thresholds because of the filibuster. That's, that's not a level playing field. And we can't fight this hard, hard fight on behalf of people who've been shut out of the system for so long, on behalf of Americans who need to get rid of that student loan debt, who need health care coverage, who need child care, who need expanded social security. We can't fight those fights only to walk in and say, oh, Mitch McConnell decided no, 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 no. So I think that if Mitch McConnell tries to pull out the filibuster in the next Senate, then I think the answer is, we're going to have to get rid of it. We just can't do this. And for me, 
I, I think of it this way. The filibuster can't solve every problem we have, but we can't solve any of the problems if Mitch McConnell gets to veto everything we do through a filibuster. So there's big structural reform. It's going <laughs> to take some energy to get everybody on board for it. But I think it's worth fighting for so that we'll be able to do what we need to do. So, Senator, we get a lot of tweets and emails and Instagram messages from listeners who tell us that four years of being angry and afraid have left them very, very tired. So if Donald Trump loses, God willing, and Democrats take the Senate, how do we convince the exhausted voters who got it done that our work is actually just starting? So I think nothing gives you energy like winning. It's true. And nothing gives you energy like making change. So let me just give you one hypothetical here. I don't know that this is exactly how it'll play, but it could. So we win. We get rid not only of Donald Trump, but we get rid of Betsy DeVos. Can we have a big cheer around that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'd say something worse. But yes. Okay. Cheer. <laughs> but we're not in the Senate, so we uh, That's right. can say ruder things. <laughs> so Bessie DeVos is gone. We have new Secretary of Education. It turns out that in the very laws that are already there, the Secretary of Education has the power not only to permit the lending of money for all these student loans, but also to cancel the student loan debt. I see you kind of flickered when I said that. Like, Whoa. That, I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, that's right. I'm not talking about Congress. I'm not talking about whether we have to get a supermajority or just a majority. I'm just saying the power is already there. So we have the right Secretary of Education, and that Secretary of Education comes in and says, I'm wiping out $50,000 of student loan debt, everybody who has an income under $150,000. You know what that would do? I want you to think about this for a minute. It would mean three out of four people who are carrying student loan today would be completely wiped out, Mm. just gone. For another group of people, a big chunk of it would be gone. More people would be able to move out of their folks' home. More people would be able to buy homes, to buy cars, to be able to start small businesses. Things that we can see right now that student loans are preventing people from being able to do. And the black-white wealth gap, let's talk about that for just a sec. You know, we have this huge black-white wealth gap in America with Latinx kind of right in between the two. So also a Latinx white wealth gap. If we design this right, and that's why I said $50,000 and up to a certain income level, we can close that black-white wealth gap by about 23 points. I mean, that's a story. We haven't done anything like that in forever. And let me just give you an idea of what that means person by person. When people borrow money, when they're in college, we now have studies showing where they are 20 years out. And here's, here's a key one. 20 years out, the average borrower who's white has about 6% of their original loan amount left to pay. The end is in sight. They're almost there, 20 years, but they're almost there. The average black borrower still owes about 95% of the original amount borrowed. Wow. Mm. They have to borrow more to go to school, borrow more while they're in school and have a harder time paying when they get out of school. So all I'm saying is 
Here is something that would affect about 43 million Americans and make their lives tangibly better like that. Here's mm -hmm. something that would help us directly affect racial injustice in this nation and do it like that. Here's mm -hmm. a change we can make that not only would help the people who are directly affected, but would help boost our economy. You know, money that's going into student loan debt payments is just coming back into the government. This is now money that can go into the economy and help strengthen the economy. Mm -hmm. We do something like that in the first few weeks. I think there'd be a jolt of energy around this nation like we haven't seen in a long, long time. Mm -hmm. I mean, we I have a lot you. of... Oh, yeah. To I mean, a lot of my like neural circuits are firing as you're talking about that. I'm thinking about COVID recovery and how that would help young people who really got screwed by the timing of the pandemic and the mishandling of it. I'm thinking about people trying to start families who sometimes put that put it off because they can't afford it. I think that that sounds like a great idea. I'm for it. Um, speaking of uh, education, some of the most effective legislators that are exciting to voters right now are women who have been teachers like you um, and like Katie Porter, for example. Um, do you think more teachers should run for office? And if so, what advice would you give them? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. More teachers should definitely run for office. And, and so here's my advice. Just do it. Just get out there, throw your feet out and jump in because we need your voice. It, teachers have been in public service from the very beginning. Teachers are people who invest in the future. Teachers are people who invest in everyone else. Teachers are people who have to bring everyone together, including, you know, the kid in the back row who's chewing gum and looking out the window and the two kids over here who are passing notes and the poor kid in the corner who's weeping. And teachers, teachers are here to try to help build a world that works not just for themselves or people who are just like them but to try to build a world for everyone. And that means we need their voices. And here's the amazing thing. Here's what I discovered. You know, I never thought I'd go into politics, electoral politics, for goodness sakes. I was gonna be a teacher all my life. I spent all of my time, once I started getting engaged on policy, on giving it to the real people who are gonna make a difference, right? To senators and to folks in Congress and even to presidents. Here's, here's the information. But here's what I discovered. When I made the decision to jump into the Senate race in Massachusetts back in 2012, the part that totally knocked my socks off were how many people said, if you'll get out there on point, I'll help you. I know how to do this part. I can set up your website. I can show you how to do a stump speech. I'll come help you do that. I can make phone calls on your behalf. I know how to help pull a crowd together. And even people who said, I don't know how to do anything, but I'm going to show up and people who are already part of the team will show me how to do it. Mm -hmm. And from that, we built grassroots. And I, I loved that about running for office. And so here's my advice. Do it. Get out there. Give it a try. Put yourself out there. We have to be in these fights. And if you do, 
people will come and they will help you. And that's how we'll make change. Hmm. Okay, so here's the light and fun part. Okay, I'm ready. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Erin and I love to joke that we are political news witches because we are. (laughs) We can predict anything that's going to happen because we're news witches. Sure. So our listeners will kill us if we don't ask, what is Bailey going to be for Halloween and has he voted? So we already know what Bailey's going to be for Halloween. He's going to be, I wanted him to be a mail carrier, a letter carrier. (laughs) No, no, hold on. So that was my first choice. I talked with him about it. He was totally into it. He said it would be really cool. He wanted the hat and every, it was really, he was ready for the whole thing. Uh, And you know, they have postal worker uh, uh, outfits online. So I go online to try to find him the mail carrier outfit. He's too big. They don't carry him. Oh. They don't carry him in big boy size. Uh, so, <laughs> so Bailey got shut out of his first choice. So he's now on his second choice. He's going to be a lion. Oh, and adorable. he looks fabulous. He looks fabulous. He tries his costume on every night for me. (laughs) And he has not yet voted. I'm down in Washington now, but we're going to vote next week. We already have a plan to vote. So we will do early voting in person, which by the way, for anybody who's listening who hasn't already voted, if you can do it, there are a few states where you can't, but most states you can do early vote in person. And the in-person means you don't have to get into this business about it was an absentee ballot and do they have to check your signatures and does it take a delay and so on. If you can do early early vote in person, bank that vote and then get out and volunteer to get more people in to vote. It's a great way to do it. So Bailey wearing a costume and being proud of it is is something that is unprecedented for a big dog for me. Like we have a... <laughs> We have a 55-pound dog, and whenever we put on his Steelers jersey to watch games, he just gets sad, and maybe it's just... <laughs> <laughs> no, Bailey, maybe it's because it's a lion. You know, uh-huh. he does a little bit of that. He looks around the kitchen as if he's looking at his domain. Uh, <laughs> so we're looking forward to it. I, I, uh. I hope we get some kids. If nothing else, Bailey and Bruce and I will sit on the porch and watch the kids and put the candy out for them to be able to get it. That's great. And on the voting note, right after we get done recording this, my husband and I are going to drop off our ballots at uh, one of the boxes here in California. So we have a plan too. Good. Senator Elizabeth Warren, thank you so much for being here. This was a lot of fun and I'm, I'm ready to go out and like change democracy now. So (laughs) I'm very inspired. So thank you so much. And um, can't wait to see what comes next. Me too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that was Senator Elizabeth Warren, which I'm, you know, it was Senator Elizabeth Warren, but I'm repeating it because I just like to hear it. I just like to hear that was Senator Elizabeth Warren. And on that note, uh, we have been soliciting uh, pet issues from you, our listeners. And here is a pet issue from one of our listeners who agrees with Elizabeth Warren on something pretty important. So here we go. Hi, Hysteria. My name is Jessica, and I'm from Austin, Texas. And my pet issue has to be student loan debt forgiveness. 
When I was in high school, my mom, who is a Republican, would repeatedly tell me that student loan debt is good debt and that I would benefit from it and pay it off quickly. And that might have been the case for my darling boomer mother, but that has not been the case for me. I'm 35 years old. I have a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and zero children because I cannot see any way to afford that. Uh, so for me, that just the cycle of student loan debt um, has been a big pet issue of mine for a long time. I know it's small, but it's also super big. Um, thanks for all you do. Bye. Thank you, Jessica, for submitting your pet issue. If student loans are another pet issue for you, we will link to resources to make your voice heard in our show notes. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, Candice Valenzuela. Okay, we are so excited to welcome this next person to Hysteria. We are welcoming Candace Valenzuela today. Candace is running to represent Texas's 24th district, a seat Republicans have held for 15 years. She entered her primary race as an outsider, but now is being talked up as one of the Democrats' rising stars, which must be a cool thing to hear about yourself. <laughs> um, she's been endorsed by friends of Hysteria, such as Representative Ayanna Presley and Senator Elizabeth Warren, and if elected, she will be the first ever Black Latina in Congress. Candace, welcome to Hysteria. Erin, it is so awesome to be here. Thank you. For our listeners who aren't familiar with you and your campaign, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to run? Well, I am, in a nutshell, I'm running for Congress because uh, the opportunities that, that helped me go from being homeless as a kid uh, living in a kiddie pool outside of a gas station with my brother and mother, uh, to being the first in my family to go to college, uh, to being the first woman of color on my North Texas school board, uh, have been under attack by this administration. And that's uh, an understatement, <laughs> given how crazy things have been since we've, we've started this process. And what I know is that if we want the kind of representation that's responsive to a lot of the struggles that families are facing, especially right now, we need to start sending more people uh, to the halls of Congress. We need to start sending more people at all levels of government who understand families, who understand their struggles, and want to deal with those urgencies as they are. Texas is notoriously a low turnout state, but we've already seen a record number of early voting in the state. Texas feels in play this election cycle in a way that it hasn't in previous election years. And if elected, you would, as Erin said, be the first Afro-Latina woman in Congress. Has the energy in Texas changed since the Trump election in 2016? It has shifted pretty significantly. And it feels like something came undone a little bit with the with the Beto O'Rourke campaign and the wave of of folks across uh, the state fighting as hard as possible uh, to to have better representation. So we saw a lot of folks making headway in races we didn't expect to see headway. Uh, Will Hurd was a very well liked member of Congress, and Gina Ortiz Jones scared him into retirement. Uh, we're seeing Mike Siegel uh, getting as close as he could uh, against Mike McCall, and now it looks like he's finally going to, to overtake him. And in 2020, uh, folks are, are fed up. The kinds of folks who thought that maybe Trump was kidding 
when they voted for him are, are now seeing him for who he is and what he's uh, what he stands for and what that means for a republic. And so we're seeing record turnout. We're seeing a lot of folks who, uh, you know, I, I have so many phone calls now with, with voters. You know, I've voted straight ticket, ticket Republican my entire life. And now I'm voting for all of the Democrats. Give me all of the Democrats. I'm voting for the Democrats right now. It's, it's a strange world to be in, but mm -hmm. it is the world we're in. That's so interesting because it's one of those things I think that that national outlets aren't really in touch with. I mean, why would they be there located on the coast? It's cool to hear people who are close to changes like what's happening in Texas. So earlier in this episode, we spoke to Elizabeth Warren about why and how teachers make great politicians. And your first foray into politics was when you were elected to the uh, Carrollton Farmers Branch Independent School District Board as an at-large representative. So can you talk to us about how you plan to fight for access to education for all when you're in Congress? Um, I, I spent a lot of my life working as a tutor. Uh, so working with young as five all the way to adults as old as 55 on basic literacy. I helped mainstream special needs students uh, into the classrooms. Um, I helped to see kids realize their dreams of, of going to college. Uh, so I, I've worked with quite a few kids and families to get them to learn. Mm -hmm. um, so what about your experience as a teacher has given you access to like an awareness of what people need and, and like, what are your educational priorities if you were a member of Congress? Well, one, uh, when you have the opportunity to have conversations uh, with five-year-olds, with six-year-olds, uh, with 15-year-olds, you start to understand what they're thinking about the world uh, and uh, what plans they have for themselves. And I know that sounds kind of odd, but you, you start to, you start to learn how to meet people where they are. And I am really grateful for those experiences. Uh, I had the opportunity to teach kids who are coming from a lot of different socioeconomic backgrounds, having been from one really difficult one myself, and seeing the differences in uh, great students, but with different access to opportunities has given me a, a sort of foundational look at what our economy and our democracy can look like uh, when you remove some of those barriers to entry. And it informs so much of the policy that I'm trying to push forth. I mean, everything from campaign finance reform to making sure that uh, pre-K is universal in this country because of the high return on investment for families and, and for children. Uh, thinking about what it means to build a republic from the ground up uh, is the perspective I think that teaching has given me. And I am just so excited about the wave of teachers, the wave of educators uh, that has come up uh, during this crisis in our democracy, because these are the kinds of folks that I've, I've seen uh, be the helpers, uh, be the people who, who take over uh, difficult situations and make them better for folks. Uh, we are seeing a new wave, not just of, of Democrats or pro progressivism, but we're seeing a new wave of compassion. And that's what we need right now, compassion. Candice, you've in part been supported by Vote Mama Pack, a pack that supports mothers with young children who are running for office. And it sort of made my brain explode to learn that there are only 25 congresswomen with young school-aged children. Why is having more moms in Congress vital to the health of our democracy? When we're talking about some of the challenges that moms are facing right now, 
we need to talk about the, the increasing cost of childcare. Some parents are paying as much as their rent or their mortgage in order to keep their kids taken care of while they're trying to work. Some parents have pulled themselves out of the job market altogether in order to take care of their kids. And that is absolutely fine if that's what you want to do. But there are quite a few folks who just don't have a choice. And without that affordable childcare, uh, you're, it, it hurts us all economically as we do lose people. It hurts uh, those kids. Sometimes they, they may end up in, in unlicensed daycares and those places aren't all the greatest places for kids to end up. Uh, as someone who's ended up, uh, you know, my mom was single. She had the, my brother and I, and we were in a lot of different types of childcare situations. And just knowing how much my mother had to give up in order to make sure that we were taken care of, I can actually picture pretty well uh, what these families are going through to make ends meet. And we don't have that kind of compassion. Again, in the halls of Congress, we have this very slick, uh, very hardworking DC uh, that has a lot of the kids neatly removed from the equation, either because they can't afford the high-priced nannies or they can't afford the high-priced childcare, or they just don't have kids at all. And again, that is fantastic if that is your choice, but for the vast majority of Americans who need policies with their kinds of families in mind, it's not enough. Uh, we need to see a bunch of different types of representation and moms need to be among them. Candace, what excites you most about potentially being elected to represent Texas's 24th district? And how can our listeners who might not live in your district but want to support you, how can they pitch in in the last vital days of the campaign? What really excites me about being able to represent the folks in, in Texas 24 is just the ability to bring my family's experiences to make better policies for other families so that the families that I, I saw in my school district who were struggling to make ends meet, who were struggling to put food on the table, maybe they'll never know who I am. Uh, maybe they'll never think of me at all, but they'll have that much more ease getting access to a job with a living wage. Maybe they'll walk outside and be able to breathe cleaner air or have potable water or not have to worry about uh, going to the grocery store and buying meat. Uh, that's bad because we've, we're starting to lose so many regulations in our, our meat packing industry. I mean, there, you know, good governance starts to become invisible. And I think that's the thing that excites me the most. I want, I want my work in politics to be so remarkably unremarkable uh, so that families can just live and breathe the way that they need to. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it was really great to hear from you and and good luck in the remainder of the campaign. Good we'll be luck. pulling for you. Yeah, we're, we're pulling for you. Thank you. And before I go, I, I need to, to let you know what I'm up against really quickly. Sure. The Republicans have dumped something like $6.5 million into my TV market against me in favor of my opponent, uh, who you might remember, she was the mayor of Irving who cheered on the police department for keeping a young boy in police custody for bringing a clock to school while being Muslim. So if you remember that, that slight 14-year-old kid, Ahmed Mohammed, otherwise known as Clock Boy, uh, this was my district. This is my opponent. My opponent endorsed Trump. Trump has endorsed her back. And there are communities in my district who are scared. So if anybody can help out by volunteering or by pitching in to help us to keep going, please go to my website, C as in Charlie, V as in Victor, the number 4C.com, CV4C.com, uh, and sign up. 
Well, they must be pretty afraid of you if they're pouring yeah. that much money into into running against you. Um, yeah, listeners, if you if you can spare some time, if you can spare a couple bucks, definitely check that out. Thank you, Candice Valenzuela. We really hope you win. Thank you. Good luck. Honor to be here. All right, that was Candace Valenzuela, who is running to represent Texas's 24th district. So now we have another pet issue from a listener. Let's take a listen. Hey, Sarah. My name's Sarah. I'm calling from Minneapolis. My pet issue is how people are handling the event industry in COVID times. Um, the com- industry is completely decimated. Um, 12 million Americans are affected by this. Many of us who were contract workers until this all hit. Um, so getting unemployment is really, really difficult, if not impossible. And uh, everyone just lumps us in with the restaurant industry, but that's not true because restaurant industry, while they were hit for sure, they can still do takeout. Alcohol companies are doing funds for them. The arts industry, we have nothing. And nobody is talking about it. Thanks, love the show. Thank you, Sarah, for bringing that to our attention. It's definitely a huge issue. If you are also interested in that as a pet issue, you can check out our show notes and we will link to more resources. Let's take a quick break. But when we come back, personal political. Okay, welcome back. That was a very stacked top of the show. So we're going to do a little bit of an abbreviated personal political this week. But it is, uh, I don't know, I guess it's not, the size doesn't matter as much, right, as how you use it. I'm sorry. But I'm bummed. Okay, so um, I want to bring in the panel. Alyssa is still with me, but we also have from across the pond, Kieran Deal, a.k.a. Nosferatu. Oh, hello. Hello. Hello, friend. No, that's terrible. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to subject you all to that. Sorry to subject you. She's yes. Kieran, by the way, is is drinking an autumnal warm beverage. Alyssa is flipping her off. Cunt. Just it's, yeah, look at my cocktail. We don't see it. Oh. Kieran is 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 like uh, gliding around a a country manor in the UK like a Victorian ghost. That's Just, exactly, yes, exactly what she is. <laughs> In a caftan. Let's let's paint the full picture, Erin. In a caftan, living her best life. Uh, I'm yeah. I'm jealous. I just want to I just want to be in another house. You know, I just want to be in another house. Listen to celebrate after the election. Come visit. Okay. Come visit. There's a room. There's a room for you. There's a room for you and um and Mister and and Mister Aaron Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'll I'll bring my husband. It'll be great. It's still weird to say husband, by husband. the way. I, hus- husband. Weird. Love it. Talk about Hus- a Victorian my husband? ghost. Have you seen my husband? Okay. Oh, my husband's Ooh, good. not good. I like that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Let's let's talk a little bit about something that went down this week that it no really one understands. Ca- <laughs> really captured the national attention. First of all. Nobody understands, like Alyssa said, how this happened, but the the conversation around it has grown like curiously more heated as the week has gone on. Early this week, uh, New Yorker staff writer uh, Jeffrey Tubin was on a Zoom call with colleagues um, that he apparently thought ended 
Um, and at that point, colleagues saw Jeffrey Tubin touching his penis. Uh. Um, yeah, like they saw him like jacking it on camera. And um, Tubin was suspended from The New Yorker. Apparently his email has been turned off. Um, and he's been taking leave from CNN where he is a contributor. Right now, the conversation around it seems to be like, first of all, it's really fun to make dick jokes. I do, it's one of my favorite things to do. Um, but beyond the dick jokes, I think there's a sort of serious conversation. Alyssa and I have been texting about this like nonstop. Stop. Um, it seems like I don't that, get it. Yeah, it's it's okay. First of all, the question is how we still don't exactly. understand like how how do you accidentally end a Zoom call with a, a you know a jam sesh on the old banjo? Um, and secondly. You know, why? You know, the, the, why would you be right at the cusp of being able to pleasure yourself at, while you're doing work call? The conversation online has, has kind of become really, really screamy. And it's between people who say, you know, of course, Jeffrey Tubin deserves to be fired. He deserves to face serious professional repercussions because of this, because it's not okay to jerk off at work in front of your colleagues. Um, and then there's the other side of it, people who are sort of people who fancy themselves the reasonable people who, you know, oftentimes just come off as smug, who say, you know, it was an honest mistake and, uh, you know, that kind of thing could happen to anybody. So, Karen, I'm going to start with you. Yeah. Why do you think there's such a chasm between people who think an incident like this should be forgiven and that an incident like this should be a professional death sentence? Like, what, what do you make of that divide? You know, I, I, maybe it has a lot to do with the logistics of if you understand how you can see a dick on Zoom. Uh, that could be really important. So it's like, did it like, because I think if you understand, oh, he stood up and then it was like the, he didn't leave the thing and then he was going for it. Or if he pushed the computer thing down and like, then he was going for it. It's like the context of where the screen is maybe makes a difference. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just... I'm, it's hard for me to understand this particularly because I'm such an incredibly private person. And I just, there's no world in which I could imagine this happening to a woman. Mm -hmm. Like there's just no world in which I could imagine a Zoom call where it's just like titties accidentally. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Oh, rub one out. Like, you know, oh, Elizabeth Warren, you crazy bitch. You know what I, mean? like, I just can't imagine that happening. It's like not going to happen. And if it did happen, it would like for sure be on OnlyFans for free, you know, like, or for for money, for money, right. you know, it's like it, the, a woman would get paid to do that kind of shit. So, so I don't know. Are we like prudish around nudity? Are we, it's not, you guys also know, it's not the only case of something like this. Like there was one in Spain where the guy got caught at showering in the middle of a, a meeting, this guy named Bernardo. Oh, I saw that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he was like, if nudity is enough to cancel me, go for it. You know? And it's like, we don't want to see your shriveled dick. Like while we're trying to decide on Prop 22, like, you know, this isn't what we want to be doing. Yeah. I mean, that brings up a really good point. And Alyssa, we kind of touched on this. Like, what do you think the divide, what do you think accounts for the divide in the way people are talking about this? Like, why are some people considering this a, a huge, like, harassy violation of a person jacking off at work? And some people just being like, he was jacking off. It's no big deal. So I think it's less about what he was doing than how it happened. Okay, so like a couple things. As someone 
as I state often, who's middle-aged, you know, I, I entered the workforce when social media, not even social media, guys, I entered the workforce when email was in its infancy. And there have been so many like catastrophic things that I have, not catastrophic, they seemed catastrophic at the time, that have happened that it makes me hypersensitive to it, right? That I'm like, so like I'm sitting here talking to you guys. This is my office space that I have created for myself. This is my work area. If I want to do something other than talk to you, I go someplace else, right? So, which I don't even know what that would be because I'm working. Mm -hmm. But for him, I feel like he's even older and like literally maybe doesn't understand how it works or is still just like, I think it's like, I don't, I don't know you guys. I'm so confused by it. I don't understand what part of the Zooms that he was doing made him want to do that. That's the part that I find the most confusing. I don't understand how like, you know that when we all separate from each other and we leave the meeting, the screen goes white. Mm -hmm. If the screen is not white, what do you think is happening to it? And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm perturbed by it. I... I don't know if it should be the end of him. I mean, I feel like you and I were talking about like if his colleagues who are his colleagues feel like they can no longer work with him because of this, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that what happens to him should be, you know, the judge and jury should be Twitter. Like I mm-hmm. just, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, like, here's the thing. Yeah. None of us were there. Mm-hmm. And, and most of the people who are talking about it and registering opinions about it were there. And I think that that's a really good point. What mm-hmm. matters is the environment that he's created for his coworkers and I really don't envy David Remnick this week having no. to having to figure out what the the right thing to do is because it's really I think it really should be up to his colleagues whether yeah. or not they're comfortable ever working with him again. But I think you touched on something interesting, and I don't want age to be an excuse. No, 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 no. But I do think that there's it, it really highlights a difference between what people who are Generation X and younger feel that work is and what like older people think work is. Like during the pandemic, we've all had to work at home. I'm at work right now, but I'm also at home. I'm wearing clothing. I'm dressed to work. My brain is at work. I'm not doing non-work things. I've worked from home for my entire writing career for like 10 years. And Part of that is is understanding that when you're at work, you're at work. Like I I am not taking breaks to to you know to go double click my own mouse. I'm not <laughs> taking I'm not taking breaks to to do stuff um, that's going to take more than like five. I mean maybe I'll go and like heat up a microwave burrito or something like that. But I think it's just a, a fundamental understanding that like even though he was in his house, he was still technically working, right. and it's not okay to have your dick out at work, even if that work is occurring in your house. That feels like a, that feels like an argument for maybe being older is like that delineation would be clearer, Mm -hmm. you know, like the, the location argument is, is one where it's like, oh, he's in his house. So he's like, I just thought I was in my house. Like Mm -hmm. this is in, you know, we were on the zoo. It was the drinks zoom at the end of the week or something, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm in my house would be the, seems like it would be the logical argument for like, oh, Never mind, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, but it also sort of brings up the like work-life balance questions that are sort of becoming uncomfortable during the pandemic, where it's like, I think people who are younger always, I think we're used to being expected to be kind of at work all the time. 
never, mm-hmm. never quite not at work. Um, and I think that people who are older maybe don't have the delineation. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm still so confused about how this whole thing happened. That's, and I feel like, but this is the thing. I feel like anyone who's like not confused isn't being honest because it's like, it's confusing. I think Jeffrey Dubin's probably confused still. Like, yeah, I just, yeah, I don't know. But I think Karen was right that a woman would never, this wouldn't ever, happen with a woman. Ever. I'm not excusing him. I just literally don't understand. <laughs> and just to play the devil's advocate here, guys, this is an adult, this is an adult, like, cogent person, an adult cogent man who was talking to people and then decided to whip his dick out and masturbate like in succession by a computer. Right. Like these are like, it's there's a lot of things that are, that are just like, that's like, is it that confusing? (laughs) Yeah. Like it's, it's your dick by a computer, man. I mean, like Jeffrey Tubin has always been very prolific, and I did wonder how he got it all done. And it's it must be the quick wank sessions between all of the work that he does. I think that's got to be it. You know, though, I think like obviously, it's it's not the same as like a Louis C.K. where he's mm-hmm. part of it mm-hmm. is like mm-hmm. he knows he's doing it and he knows the people are uncomfortable with it. And part of the reason he's doing it is because he's making people uncomfortable. It seems like he's very embarrassed about it. But at the same time, I hate this feeling that every time a guy who's powerful fucks up, we immediately jump to the like male bumbler to 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 bring up that Lily Loofborough piece from 2017. We're bringing up the male bumbler excuse like, oh, this guy that's at the top of his field was too dumb to not jerk off at work, you know? Yeah, I was going to say the flip side of that is like the gradation thing that you brought up, right? It's like, this isn't, this isn't Louie, you know, this isn't Harvey. So like understanding that there is like a, like a spectrum of, of behavior and activity. And sometimes there is a danger for it all to get lumped into one big, like cancel culture. It's different. It's not necessarily less. You know what I mean? Like it's different than all, like all these things are different from each other, but like none of them are okay. (laughs) They're not Mm -hmm. good. Right. And Alyssa's <laughs> like an apple is not a potato. <laughs> that is exactly right, Karen. Very good. <laughs> an apple. <laughs> you yeah. idiot. I don't want to eat French fries now. Um, <laughs> it's. I think that it. the question of, like the, a lot of the conversation is about like predatory behavior from now, from, from men or like successful men feeling entitled to act however they want. And I think those are valid conversations, but I think the more important conversation here or like the more relevant conversation to more people is the the question of like, okay, what is work-life balance when you're working from home? And, and like, I think that companies could learn from this by saying like, okay, when you are at work, you are expected to behave as though you're at work. And in exchange, I'm your boss. I'm not going to email you from... 8 p.m. Mm-hmm. until 8 a.m. Because mm. when we're at home all the time, what what we risk is, I mean, if we're at work all the time, when are we supposed to jack off? <laughs> you know, if we're at home <laughs> mm-hmm. all the time, when are we mm-hmm. supposed to actually work? I think right now during the pandemic, like, I mean, that was a, like a kind of flip way of characterizing it. But like when we're working from home and when the time during which a lot of people will be doing that seems to stretch out indefinitely. Companies really need to think about what that means for their employees and what their responsibility is to their employees so that they don't burn people out. And also so that they don't make people feel like because they're at work all the time, they can do whatever they want in the background. Um, 
so that's that's my that's my two cents about it. I, I don't know about what should happen to him professionally, but I really hope that um, what an embarrassing thing to happen, you know? What a really that's gonna stick with him for the rest of his fucking life. I mean, that's like a Pee Wee Herman type situation. Well, and that's the thing. What's gonna stick with him is not that he's a predator. <laughs> it's that how dumb is he? Like it's it's like it's almost I don't know. It's 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 should not they good. Make- should they make his tombstone a dick? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I hope not. You know, like, I've the, the funny thing is, like, there are definitely men that I have encountered in the world of journalism and media that I'm like, I would really love to see them be brought down by one of those, like, one of these, like, embarrassing dick show and scandals because they've been acted like pompous assholes to me. And Jeffrey Tubin was not one of those people that I mm-hmm. that I hoped mm-hmm. for that I hoped for a, a bad downfall for. He was always perfectly lovely to me. It doesn't mean that he can't do something stupid and fucked up or or bad, but mm. he was always one of those people that I was like, uh, when this came out, I was like, oh, that's a shame. <laughs> that, yeah, that's that's yeah. You like the guy? You yeah, like, I don't know that. I don't know. I don't know him. So it's like it's you know for me it's right. And just because he was nice to me doesn't mean he's nice to everybody else all the time. That is you know plenty of you know, Hitler loved his dogs. Um, but you know, every, everybody, it's just, you know, it's a shame. It's definitely left me with one last burning question, which is when am I masturbating and when am I working (laughs) to summarize what you were saying here? And it's like, when, when do you do which one? I feel like at the end of your zoom schedule is safe to target. (laughs) It's the it's the deep philosophical question of 2020. Do it it's in like a, our to be or not to be. Do it in a different room. I think that's at minimum. If you're if you must during work hours, do it in a room that doesn't have any of your tech in it. Do it I in agree. a different room. It's, it's good computer free room. It's good guidance, Aaron. Just do it away from a webcam. Put a piece of tape <laughs> on your webcam. That shit is not secure. Okay. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, <laughs> when we come back, we will be doing a, a very special I Feel Petty with a very special guest. Before we get to a very special edition of I Feel Petty, a little bit of housekeeping. Alyssa, how are you voting? I voted, girl. You voted? I how? sure did. Uh, I voted by mail and I okay. took it to the post office and I read all the directions 15 times because I didn't want to fuck it up. Are you able to check in New York whether or not your ballot was accepted? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I have to, you know what? That's a very good thing. I should check. It doesn't leave you with any sort of tracking information or anything, but there is a barcode. So I will, I will check because I will say this. The placement of the ballot, the secrecy envelope inside the regular envelope in New York is not intuitive. You have to put it in Mm -hmm. upside down and backwards. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, here's my plan to vote. I voted yesterday. I, uh, uh, Josh and I filled out our ballots and we put them in the envelope and we went to a designated ballot drop-off place in our local library, the Edendale branch of the Los Angeles Public Library. And the drop-off ballot drop-off box is right in the middle of a, a COVID testing area uh, which I found to be strange, but we, we we were masked up. Everybody was masked up. I actually felt very safe, dropped it off, and it was super easy. And in the state where I vote, California, you can check to see whether or not your ballot was accepted. So um, in a few days, I will be checking and making sure that it got accepted. And if it didn't, I'm going to be raising holy hell. 
It sounds good. Because voting is fun. Um, so if you haven't voted yet, make a plan. There are less than 12 days left to vote, but you don't have to wait until then to get your vote in. There are plenty of options to vote early and safely. Visit votesaveamerica.com slash plan to make your plan, find your voting location, and vote as soon as you can and tell all your family and friends to do the same. We've made it easier than ever to find remote and in-person volunteer opportunities with Vote Save America's new volunteer hub at votesaveamerica.com volunteer. There you can find everything from your usual phone and text banks to rolls delivering yard signs or staffing voter protection hotlines. Go to votesaveamerica.com volunteer to find all your options to get involved between now and election day. Um, and Alyssa, you've got something cool going on at Crooked, don't you? I do, Erin, my digital series, Let's Break It Down, where we go behind the scenes of things that are happening on the campaign and in the White House to talk about how they happen. This week, I am with Daniel Crutchfield, who was my deputy for all of my years on the Obama campaign and in the White House. And uh, we talk about what goes into planning an election night and what we should be looking for on election night. That's really exciting. Um once I get over my like daily wave of panic about the election, I'll definitely check that out. Well, we include things like our superstitions and what we should or shouldn't be talking about on election day. Oh, good, good. I will want to know those things because I'm feeling extremely superstitious. Um, and you can see that in all Crooked Media content that is digital video at youtube.com slash Crooked Media. Okay, and now let's get to I Feel Petty. Guys, we have a treat for you today. Joining us today, we have a very special guest. She's a writer, director, and Vanity Fair contributor. Her newest piece, titled Rudy Giuliani is My Father, please everyone vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Hmm, I wonder what that piece is about. Uh, it's been making some waves. You can read it now on VanityFair.com. Please welcome Caroline Rose Giuliani. Hi, thanks for having me. We are really glad you're here. Um, for our listeners who haven't read the piece or who might not have kind of delved into it, can you share what made you decide to write the piece right now? Sure, yeah. Um, I feel like our country has been in such a state of crisis um, for the last four years and just getting progressively worse and worse. And I really try hard to not not say something unless I have something very specific to say, which is why it took a little bit of time to come to this point of writing this. But in the last year, I've just observed so many of my friends and colleagues feeling so overwhelmed by politics and just being turned off by them and by like the toxic nature of them. And I recognized that from my childhood that I sort of, I've been experiencing that feeling my whole life. And when I saw this in like everybody around me, I realized I could like speak to that um, that feeling and you know just give my perspective on what I learned over the years, which is that you know I tried running away, it doesn't change anything, and we really need to vote and vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris because we need someone empathetic and compassionate and decent leading us. Um, that must have been hard to write something so directly confrontational to your dad, especially because your dad is somebody who is a close pal of the president. Um, have you communicated with him about the piece at all? Did he know it was coming? And do you really, do you, do you care how he feels about it? Um, you know, it's hard. It's stuff like that is always hard on an emotional level, I think. Uh, 
no matter what the nature of your relationship is with your parent. Um, I did give him a heads up that I was writing something, although I don't think he really like comprehended the the depth <laughs> of it. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm not sure I even comprehended it until I started uh, until I started writing it. But yeah, it's it's um, it's something that I sort of decided was worth dealing with those issues because I think our voices are so important and like it, it just felt impossible to repress anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that the piece is sort of if you have if the listeners haven't read it, it's sort of like a surgical blowtorch because you kind of walk <laughs> such a you walk such a tightrope of of being like, look, I love my dad, he's my dad, but also like fuck this. Like it's it's uh it's a really interesting line that you try to walk. I know a lot of listeners um, of the show have male relatives, grandfathers, fathers, dads, uncles, who they differ from politically. So what advice would you give to listeners who have a dad or other childhood authority figure who they find politically repugnant? Well, first of all, I tried super hard and I thought that, you know, I was trying to have my voice be as civil and kind and empathetic as possible uh, while still speaking the truth because I wanted, you know, I, that's what I want for our country. I want us to return to being kind to each other and, and honest also at the same time. So that was my, my goal. And I hope that that came across. I think some of the coverage of it, you know, painted it differently because that's kind of like how the media just gets attention. But Mm -hmm. um, as for advice for like speaking to people you differ from, I think for me, it's, it's been helpful to try to remind myself of the context of the person I'm talking to um, and like their background and it sort of helps have conversations without taking things, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to take these things so personally because politics are so deeply ingrained in, in our life. But I think it helps to have those conversations if you can sort of put a, a level of distance between yourself and recognize the, the, the system that's created the person. And in this case, like, Obviously, my dad had a whole career before Trump, but I do think that Trump has um, created such a toxic climate that so much behavior that we're seeing is so symptomatic of that. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it's helpful for me to to think about that, not to, like, give anybody a pass, but but it can help. And then I think it's also, like, I try really hard to focus on my mental health when I'm having those conversations and sort of, like, check in with myself about what I can handle in those moments and do I want to continue this conversation? Is it worth it to me? Um, and I think, yeah, like thinking about that is just as important because, you know, you're not that likely to to change things with a lot of people. So I think taking care of yourself should be a priority in those conversations. Mm-hmm. And then before we get to the things that we all feel petty about, um, <laughs> what is, I mean, because this is something that feels both petty and not petty at the same time. Because the coverage, like you said, Caroline, made it seem like it was a petty move. But if you read the article, it's not petty at all. It's it's very deeply important to you. So my last question is, what can be done for people who enabled Donald Trump, like your dad, to get some form of redemption? Is there anything that they can do after, fingers crossed, this is all over, that can lead them to a path where we want to be at Thanksgiving with them again? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think starting to listen would be a good first step. And that's sort of one of the reasons I try to do my best to keep my voice as kind and decent as possible, because I think that gives us the best chance of 
like coming together and communicating. And that's also one of the reasons that I am supporting Joe Biden, aside from the fact that he's not Trump. Um, <laughs> but I do think that he has the, like, I think our country needs to come together right now. Um, and so I think, you know, his somewhat moderate position is actually a good thing, even though, you know, it may not in a vacuum be my first choice um, in terms of all policy. I just think we're in such a state of crisis of like divisiveness that someone who can start to bridge the gap can like pull us back from falling over the ledge and then we can like take the strides we need to take instead of just like falling and dying. (laughs) (laughs) That's a terrible metaphor, but (laughs) most, but most things are, I mean, that's how that's, that's usually what like thinking about this administration reduces me to. It's like, ah, it's on fire. Um, Okay. Well, Caroline, thank you for writing the piece. Everybody who's listening should read the piece. Um, Let's get to stuff that is petty. Okay. Sure. Um, Sure. I can take it. Okay, cool. (laughs) So I'm going to start with a thing that I'm feeling petty about this week, which in the spirit of Caroline's piece is both serious and also could be read as me being a little bit like, take that. Okay. Cancel Thanksgiving now. Cancel Christmas now. (laughs) If you are operating under the illusion that you are going to have a big holiday gathering, anybody listening, uh, you're not. Nobody is. It's a bad idea. Um, And I'm going to say as somebody who had to cancel two weddings this year, um, don't. It's fine. I got married like two weeks ago. It all worked out just fine. But but canceling the weddings, it's okay. (laughs) Canceling the weddings was horrible. It is so much better to just make a plan around the possibility of something getting in the way than it is to make a plan with a million moving parts that can all fall apart. Um, right now we're kind of on the cusp of a really bad stage of the pandemic. Just, just abandon any dreams anybody had of having a family Thanksgiving or family Christmas, make a contingency plan, come up with cool gift boxes, come up with something else to be excited about. Christmas is canceled and Thanksgiving is canceled. And I'm sorry. That's, that's what I feel petty about this week. I mean, I totally feel you The like 2020, chalk it up to 2020. And like, it's just, it's the time to make it to adapt. (laughs) We need to for everyone's health and safety. Yeah, totally. Um, Alyssa, do you want to go next? Yeah, sure. I had, I had one that was, was more serious, but then this one really fucking toasted me this morning. So for the first time since 1965, Peanuts specials are not going to air for free, like over regular television, like ABC. Like it's the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown. It's the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown Christmas. I'm sorry, but like, I know I'm fucking 44 and I don't even have kids, but like, I like the great pumpkin. (laughs) I have a made pumpkin patch in my front yard. I'll send pictures. But it's like, it just seems like, does everything have to go to Apple? And so anyway... All of the peanut specials are going to Apple. And the reason I actually wanted to bring it up is in case there are any parents listening or middle-aged people like me who just enjoy watching it every now and again, it will be for free. Apple's going to air it uh, in front of the paywall. I think I said that the right way. Um, From October 30th to November 1st. So if you care about The Great Pumpkin, uh, that is where you can find it. And I just think it's like just one more thing. Just one more thing. Yeah, that's garbage. It should definitely not be. It should not. uh, You know, where I grew up as a kid, we couldn't even get cable because it was too rural. Me neither. We didn't have cable. We had five channels. Right. 
So anytime anything was on cable, like when kids would talk about like watching Nickelodeon, I'd be like, wow, look at you town privileged people. But can I, uh, and can I tell you why I don't feel that stupid sharing this? Because Mm -hmm. I found out about it from Sherilyn Eiffel's Twitter feed and she's the legal, (laughs) she's the head of the NAACP legal defense fund. So I feel okay. I think that's fine. If she's taking the time, if Sherilyn Eiffel is taking the time to feel petty about it's the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown, I think that's totally fine. Um, Kieran, do you have an I feel petty this week all the way from England? Oh, I have one. Yes. Like I have it. I have one that I'm going to say is, is decently epic. I like took notes on this one, you guys, like that's how epic this is. And so, um, I felt like yours, Aaron should be like followed by abandon your dreams, (laughs) just a little jingle, (laughs) jingle vibes. Okay. So this, I want, I wanted to paint a picture on this one. Close your eyes and picture the hottest couple that you can possibly think of. Do it. Close mm-hmm. your eyes. Okay. Okay. Terry Gross style. This is what I'm going for. <laughs> if I am sitting with you at dinner, I still do not want to see your PDA. <laughs> I don't want to watch you massage your girlfriend's head and rub her lips <laughs> over your neck while I am waiting for calamari. I do not want to be invited into a jacuzzi while you are groping each other. Now, this is not because I'm jealous. Like, you guys are probably shaped together like a hairy eggplant. I just I truly, truly just feel uncomfortable. Like, I didn't grow up watching this, and I mean it from my heart. Like, do it. Like, fucking do it. But just do it behind a door or some curtains or just, like, not on the beach where your girlfriend is lying topless on top of you as you grab <laughs> her butt cheeks. You can just call me a housewife from the 1950s or a vampire from the 1200s, Erin. You can even fucking call me like Mike Pence like I just, I still do not want to watch your PDA. Love is a premise is questionable and your affection feels like a personal attack on my worldview. <laughs> I co-sign that entirely. Wow. Yeah. I think that there's like, I think that when you're in public, you should always defer to the less spicy option. Like, you know, like if you're going to, if you're going to eat food in an office, eat food that doesn't smell bad, you know, even if it's your favorite kind of food, because you need to, you know, defer, don't smoke in front of people. Don't finger bang in front of people. You know, (laughs) we're among the people. Like, just think about, just think about the people generally. Just think about the people. <laughs> Europe's crazy, you guys. <laughs> Europe's nuts. This place is crazy. Yeah. Well, I let Biden win so I can come back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Caroline, do you have anything that you feel strongly about that doesn't matter that much? I'm not sure if this counts as petty. It's more of like a desperate plea, but I really, really am so desperate for the second half of Pen 15 to come out. And I don't know if it's been shot or I don't know where they are with it, but we really need it right now, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, Maya Erskine is like one of the funniest working it's actresses. so good. It's, it's so good. I always forget that they're like the age that they are just like works so well. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. That show is season one. I burned through season two. I'm having to take in like little IV drips because it's so like fearlessly awkward that yeah. like I can't watch more than one episode at a time. <laughs> Well, it's, that's good. You won't run out into the end like me. <laughs> oh, no. And then I'm just going to be crying about it. It's, I'm, I feel the same way about I Think You Should Leave, that comedy sketch show on Netflix that had like 16-minute episodes. It's like it it's like absurdist comedy that makes no sense. And I, I am yearning for another season. I think that, you know what? 
I'm going to build on your pettiness, Caroline, and say, I think that during these COVID times, beloved franchises should have websites that update us about where everything is in production. So I, that oh my God, just, yes. Absolutely. I just want to know. You can't just, <laughs> just keep us hanging. <laughs> I know, like, okay, I really want to see the new Top Gun movie, which was ready, apparently, but they're not releasing it yet. Like, just tell me, just give me some expectations, you know? Exactly, exactly. I just, just to- want to know what's coming at us or not. <laughs> <laughs> the Batman was paused. The Batman was paused because Pattinson was, uh, he got the COVID. Yeah. Somebody know, was so. joking that, that COVID came full circle, infecting the Batman, coming from bats <laughs> and getting finally. <laughs> oh my God. To the, to the Batman. But um, okay, guys, I think we feel petty. That was a good pettiness. That was a good, like, serious petty mix. Caroline Rose Giuliani, thank you so much for joining us. This was really fun. You should come back on the other side of a Biden victory, hopefully. (laughs) Hell yeah, I would love to. (laughs) Thanks for having me. And that's our show. Thank you to Senator Elizabeth Warren, Candace Valenzuela, Caroline Rose Giuliani, Kieran Deal, America's soulmate, Alyssa Mastromonaco, and also to you, our listeners. There will be more hysteria next week. Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Rustin is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastromonaco is our co-producer, and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer, and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Our digital team is Narmelconian and Matt DeGroote. Thank you to Juliet Beckstrand for production support every week. <laughs> <laughs>